Hi, and welcome back to the podcast, everyone. My name is Andy Jensen. I'm a chief resident at UCLA. And as of last week, I am the now past chair of the AOS Resident Assembly. You're listening to JOS Unplugged, the Yellow Journals podcast. Today, we'll be reviewing three research articles from the April 15th, 2019 issue of Yellow Journal. These research articles cover the surgical management of femoral neck fractures, C5 nerve motor palsies following ACDF surgery, and a comparison of limb salvage versus amputation for sarcomas. In the second half of the podcast, I'll be interviewing Dr. Liu about his review article titled Total Hip Arthroplasty for Post-Traumatic Conditions. And then as a special additional segment that we're calling Residence Corner, I'll also be interviewing his co-author, Dr. Dana Phillips, who is a fourth-year resident at Temple University. We'll be talking about how she prepares for her surgical cases and how she maximizes the educational value of each of her surgeries. Despite being a frequently researched area of orthopedics, the surgical management of geriatric hip fractures is not as universally standardized as one might think. Surgical options are broad, include fracture fixation with ORAF, hemiarthroplasty, and total hip arthroplasty. And even within total hip arthroplasty and hemi, there are many important surgical variables such as whether to cement the femoral stem. To address this in 2014, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons published clinical practice guidelines for the management of geriatric hip fractures. These clinical practice guidelines, or CPGs, are meant to assist surgeons with high-level evidence in the management of common patient populations, such as geriatric hip fractures. However, the adherence to these guidelines, specifically for geriatric hip fractures, is currently unknown. In their research article, Dr. Stambo and colleagues distributed an online questionnaire with two geriatric hip fracture case vignettes to members of the Orthopedic Trauma Association and the American Academy of Hip and Knee Surgeons to assess whether surgical management of geriatric hip fractures varied by surgeon subspecialty, namely comparing orthopedic traumatologists and arthroplasty specialists. The authors had 556 respondents with a subspecialty distribution that more or less reflects the relative numbers of trauma and arthroplasty surgeons. They found that arthroplasty surgeons were more likely to choose total hip arthroplasty over hemi and to use spinal anesthesia over general than their trauma-trained colleagues. They also found that younger surgeons were more likely to use cemented femoral stems in the cases of compromised femoral bone stock than older orthopedic surgeons. Overall, their results underscore the wide variability of surgical techniques, even in a well-studied area such as geriatric hip fractures, and the influence of subspecialty training on one's surgical management decisions. Postoperative C5 motor palsies are a known potential complication of cervical spine surgery. We most often think of these motor palsies following posterior cervical surgery, but they can happen after anterior cervical spine surgery as well, such as after ACDF. Patients with postoperative C5 motor palsies present with deltoid or biceps weakness, and although most of these nerve palsies ultimately resolve with time, Persistent nerve dysfunction can cause severe limitations for patients. Dr. Wagner and colleagues in their research article sought to evaluate the rates of C5 motor palsies after ACDF surgery. And specifically, what they wanted to know was whether the number of fused cervical levels influenced the rates of C5 motor nerve palsy. They retrospectively reviewed 196 patients who had undergone either 1, 2, 3, or 4 level ACDF over one year at a single institution. They excluded patients who had preoperative motor weakness, 
who also had a posterior cervical spine surgery at the same time, or who had had a corpectomy procedure. They defined C5 motor nerve palsies as a loss of at least one level of standard muscle strength testing for the deltoid or biceps muscle groups. The authors found that the overall rate of C5 motor palsies after ACDF was 5.1%, and further that this rate of C5 motor palsies did not significantly vary according to the number of levels fused. The authors concluded that the number of cervical levels included in an ACDF procedure do not influence the rate of postoperative C5 motor nerve palsies. In their research article, Dr. Wilk and colleagues evaluated the PROMISE scores of their patients who had undergone either limb salvage or amputation for non-metastatic sarcomas. The PROMISE scoring system is a type of PRO, which stands for Patient Reported Outcome. This is a way to measure how well patients are doing after surgery as opposed to other outcome measures such as radiographic measures or laboratory values, those sorts of things, patient-reported outcomes take into account the patient's perception of their clinical condition. The PROMISE score, which stands for Patient-Reported Outcomes Measurement Information System, is a NIH-funded and created patient-reported outcome that is unique in that it is not disease-specific. So it allows researchers and physicians to compare patients' quality of life across different medical conditions and to the general U.S. population at large. The PROMISE scoring system is composed of multiple domains all related to physical and mental health. These domains include things such as physical function, anxiety, pain, fatigue. And in general, it's a really strong way of comparing the overall health and clinical outcomes of different patient groups. So in Dr. Wilk's study, there were 138 patients who had presented with non-metastatic sarcomas and ultimately ended up undergoing either limb salvage or amputation. These patients were grouped into whether they had undergone limb salvage or amputation and to whether they had more or less than 12-month follow-up at their last clinic visit. When comparing the groups who had more or less than 12 months of follow-up, the authors found that in general, the PROMISE scores were improved for the groups that were more than one year out from their surgery. They additionally found that patients in the limb salvage group had better physical function domain scores than their peers in the amputation group. And interestingly, these patients in the limb salvage group actually had even better emotional health scores in domains such as fatigue, sleep disturbance, and depression than even the general U.S. population at large. All right, so now I'd like to welcome Dr. Min Liu, who, along with his co-author, Dr. Dana Phillips from Temple University, have written a review article titled Total Hip Arthroplasty for Post-Traumatic Conditions, that we'll be talking about today. Thank you so much, Dr. Liu, for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Liu, what made you and Dr. Phillips want to write this article? Well, yeah, so here at Temple, we are in an urban setting, and we are a level one trauma center. And being a joint reconstruction surgeon at a level one trauma center, naturally, I got a lot of referrals for patients with post-traumatic conditions, people who had fractures of the proximal femur or acetabulum treated in the past and subsequently went on to develop secondary degenerative joint disease for various reasons. Also, by happenstance, there were a lot of patients from the Dominican, Puerto Rico, and various parts of the Caribbean who somehow found their way to Philadelphia and due to limitations in their medical care also developed a lot of these post-traumatic conditions. 
And so we end up taking care of a lot of them at Temple, and I've had the good fortune of seeing a lot of their care happen here. Awesome. So it sounds like you have quite extensive experience thus far in dealing with these post-traumatic conditions with total hip arthroplasty. So let's say one of these patients walks into your clinic. It's a new patient. They've had surgery before. For the listeners, what sort of workup do you start with? Yeah, so it starts with their general history and physical exam. So in terms of the history, imperative to obtain their surgical history, what kinds of implants were used, if there were any perioperative complications in terms of infection, blood clot, or neurovascular injury. In terms of physical exam, some of the high points would be to see what prior surgical approach was used, if there were any wound healing issues or neurovascular injury associated with the prior operation. And then we go from there to order good quality x-rays of all the prior hardware. In the case of prior pelvic or acetabular fracture treatment, we oftentimes get specialized Jude views or inlet-outlet views depending on the fracture pattern to see if the fracture has healed. For prior femoral fixation, we oftentimes get full-length femur films. In any case, a CT scan is oftentimes warranted to see how much bony healing has occurred and result in bony deficiencies and the overall appearance of the hardware. I see. In terms of ruling out infections in these patients, which obviously makes this complicated situation even more complicated, what steps in your practice do you take to evaluate whether one of these patients who have had one, if not more, surgeries in the past, what steps do you take to make sure that they aren't currently infected? Yeah, so in terms of an infection workup, this is critical whenever we are doing a joint arthroplasty And in terms of our workup, it is pretty much the standard orthopedic protocol for ruling out infection. So we start with serum markers consisting of ESR, sedimentation rate, and C-reactive protein, CRP. If either of those markers are elevated, then we would order a hip aspiration, usually done by interventional radiology. And that fluid is sent for cell count with differential as well as uh, culture analysis. If there is any equivocation on either the cell count being elevated or the culture showing you know, scant growth or positive gram stain or something of that nature, then sometimes we proceed with an open biopsy or basically a culture of the hardware when we take the hardware out. So this is something that we talked about in the paper, which is that oftentimes these cases can be performed in a single stage operation. But if there is any sort of concern about infection where there is discordance in the workup, then you can play it safe and do the reconstruction as a second stage and culture the hardware at the first stage. Usually the ESR, CRP, and aspiration would suffice for workup. Very rarely do we obtain tagged white cell scans or nuclear medicine studies. Again, with this kind of a situation, you always have the sort of luxury of being able to use a first stage to take out hardware and culture the implant. So therefore, it's not even sort of necessary often to go to the step of a nuclear medicine study. And one of the great points you and Dr. Phillips made in your paper, I thought, was even in the situations where, you know, ESR and CRP are negative, there's no preoperative concern for infection, still, regardless, you send all the hardware that you take out for culture just to make sure there isn't an occult infection, which I think is a really valuable learning point. So Dr. Liu, what is your imaging modality of choice 
in the situation when you're concerned about a limb length discrepancy? Because I know a lot of these post-traumatic patients can have limb length discrepancies. Yeah, still the first choice would be a good quality low-lying AP pelvis. And you can assess the relative heights of the lesser trochanters relative to whichever landmark you prefer, either the acetabular teardrops or the ischial tuberosities. And so by comparing those landmarks side to side, you can get a sense of their radiographic leg length difference. And then we compare that to their clinical leg length inequality. So that's part of your physical exam and see whether there's a concordance or discordance between the radiographic and observed limb length inequalities. So if there is a difference between those two, there might be another explanation such as a flexion contracture or some kind of extra articular limb length difference. And then in terms of limb length discrepancies, we'll touch on this in a little bit when we get to the surgeries themselves, but you know, one thing that's often talked about is how much lengthening is safe. Because of course, the more you lengthen a shortened limb, the more tension is placed on the neurovascular structures, such as the sciatic nerve, and patients could theoretically develop a sciatic nerve palsy presenting with, for instance, a foot drop. So Dr. Lim, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how much lengthening is safe for patients with post-traumatic hip arthritis. Yeah, that is a interesting question for our situation because in a post-traumatic patient, their limbs are not congenitally short. It's something that has happened over time, either from fracture malunion or osteonecrosis or any other number of factors that cause their limb to shorten. Therefore, their sciatic nerve should not be congenitally short. I believe that in these post-traumatic situations, their limb should be restored to its proper length to hopefully match the other side so that they should hopefully not have a persistent limb length inequality after the operation. Now, that means if we can restore two centimeters of length, then I will do so. In patients with congenital issues such as adult hip dysplasia, that is different because their sciatic nerve is congenitally short. And therefore, you shouldn't overlengthen them. That would cause a sciatic nerve palsy. So that being said, most people still go by two to two and a half centimeters as far as acceptable amount of lengthening. But you have to restore them to their prior length. Otherwise, then you may have issues with instability and altered hip biomechanics. And that would also be an issue. Awesome. Thank you. I agree. That's a very important distinction between folks who have congenital limb length discrepancies and therefore congenitally short neurovascular structures versus those who have acquired their limb length discrepancy and do not have congenitally shortened neurovascular structures. So Dr. Liu, moving on to the surgeries themselves, the way after reading your article that I sort of conceived of these procedures is that they're in fact two procedures in one. So a first procedure, it's a revision approach with hardware removal. And then, you know, after you're done with all that, you're doing a complex total hip. Is that a fair way for the listeners to think about these total hip arthroplasties for patients who have had post-traumatic conditions? Yeah, absolutely. Even though the finished product is, quote unquote, a primary total hip replacement, one should think of these as much more than a primary hip replacement and more in line with a revision total hip arthroplasty. 
Numerous papers have shown that the complexity and complication rates and outcomes are more in line with revisions than primaries. And so that's why conversions are even coded separately from primaries. That's what these are, conversion hip arthroplasties. So I do agree with that assessment that they should be thought of more as this almost a revision procedure. And then in terms of the surgical approach, you know, I think one of the very apparent things from reading the article is that a surgeon who's going to take on these cases needs to be comfortable with all of the approaches to the hip because, as you said, sometimes these patients will have had anterior lateral surgeries or posterior surgeries. So, Dr. Lee, what is your thought process on deciding upon a surgical approach for these patients? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to their previous surgical approach and the hardware that is in place. So for prior acetabular and pelvic trauma, if they have a prior posterior column fixation, and I recognize that that hardware has to be removed, then a posterior-based approach would make the most sense. Anterior column fixation can oftentimes be left alone and ignored, and so that may not be an issue. And then for prior femoral fixation, whether a sliding hip screw or cephalomedullary nails, Oftentimes, their surgical incisions are more laterally based and can be incorporated into either an anterolateral or posterolateral approach. Now, because these patients with post-traumatic disease can have issues with abductor deficiency, limb length discrepancy, and soft tissue-related issues, I do oftentimes prefer those lateral-based approaches for enhanced postoperative stability. So when possible, And when I don't have to go posterior for additional exposure, then doing a lateral-based approach is preferred in my hands to enhance their postoperative stability. And oftentimes that lateral-based approach will be directly in line with, you know, their trochanteric hardware, you know, the nail entry site. And so that makes it a very convenient way to access the hardware as well. Excellent. And another one of the points you and Dr. Phillips made is during the approach, even when you see this femoral hardware, you leave it in until after you dislocate the hip because, of course, you you would remove the hardware and then dislocate the hip, you're putting yourself at risk for an iatrogenic fracture. So that was a great take-home point as well. All right, so now, Dr. Liu, you've completed your approach. What surgical pearls do you have for the listeners now for removing hardware from the femur? Yeah, so this all starts with preparation outside the OR and the weeks, days, even before the case occurs. So again, if possible, and if we have the implant records available, then having the specialized extraction instruments for that specific system can make a huge difference. If not, then we have to prepare hardware removal sets and order them in to make sure we have everything we need on hand for hardware removal. So by being prepared, really preparation is the key to success here. And that would consist of slap hammers, various types of hooks for nail extraction, broken screw removal sets for screws that might be stripped, trefines for screws that are broken in there, and even metal cutting burrs if you need to cut the hardware out. And besides the meticulous preparation in terms of the equipment you might need to take things out, have C-arm available in case you need to localize the hardware, And if it becomes really hairy and difficult to take things out, then sometimes you have to, you know, swallow pride and do the hard removal and come back to fight another day for the hip reconstruction. 
you know, like we discussed, we prefer to do these in one setting, but if things are going long and there is excessive VBL, then sometimes you just do one part of it and come back to fight another day. You've already mentioned one in that oftentimes the anterior column screws on the acetabulum may not necessarily need to be involved if they aren't close enough to where you'll be reaming for your acetabular cup. Are there any other pearls you have for listeners about hard removal from the pelvic bone itself? So yeah, there are different approaches to doing this. Some people favor removing all the hardware right off the bat, but my philosophy is you don't have to necessarily deal with hardware until you encounter it. So we try to, as much as possible, go through our normal steps of the operation. Like you said, do the approach, dislocate the hip, and then deal with hardware as it becomes necessary so that we are not going constantly back and forth between hard removal, reconstruction, hard removal, reconstruction. You just do it when it's necessary. And so when we, for example, do the acetabular reaming and start to encounter screws, then you can selectively take those screws out or burr them down from the inside. And if you think that you're able to get your press fit component in just by burring the screws down a couple of millimeters, that might save you the added headache of exposing the entire plate and going after screws that may be stripped or whatnot. Excellent. So not removing hardware until it's absolutely necessary and burring down the screws if they do get in way as opposed to taking out the entire plate, for instance, on a posterior column fixation. Excellent. Yeah, that idea of being flexible in your strategy that you may not have to deal with all of the hardware. Okay, so let's say you know, you've know you done your approach, you've dislocated the hip, taken out all the hardware that needs to be taken out. What is your thinking on which acetabular and femoral components to use? As much as we can in the reconstruction phase of this procedure, we try to boil it down to the basic principles of primary total hip arthroplasty. So that means obtaining adequate bone implant fixation or adequate press fit of the components, achieving adequate component alignment, so antiversion, abduction of the acetabular component, antiversion of the femoral component, achieving adequate leg length and offset restoration in terms of hip biomechanics, a stable joint articulation, and preserving or restoring bone stock for future procedures. And so in the case of the acetabular side, we generally use non-cemented components. That seems to be the standard of care in the United States. By using uncemented components, we will be able to place screws into multiple portions of the acetabular component for supplementary fixation, especially in cases where the underlying bone stock might be compromised. If necessary, I'll use augments or cages, but these are more rarely encountered for acetabular reconstructions in this scenario. In terms of the femoral reconstruction, our goal is to bypass the previously weakened bone. And so if there was a sliding hip screw in place, then we try to bypass that by two, two and a half cortical diameters. And so you would usually use a longer stemmed component than your principal arthroplasty components. And these are usually, again, uncemented components because especially in the case of prior intramedullary fixation, the endosteum of the femur is also compromised and therefore cement doesn't have as good fixation as cementless. Dr. Liu, one other implant variable that you and Dr. Phillips mentioned in your paper 
is the use of dual mobility cups. Do you mind explaining to listeners what exactly dual mobility technology is? And furthermore, how often do you find yourself using dual mobility for these patients? Yeah, so there are dual mobility articulations that have been in use in Europe for a longer period of time than in the United States. And what this consists of is a astabular component with a metallic inner bearing. And on the femoral side, you have a small metal head inside of a larger polyethylene outer head. And this looks like basically a bipolar head. And so it is a polyethylene against metal articulation, but the head consists of two parts and is essentially bipolar within the astabular component. What this allows for is a greater effective arc of motion until impingement because you have the motion of the larger polyethylene head within the astabular component, and then you also have the motion of the small metal head within the polyethylene bearing. So it's greater range of motion until impingement and also a greater effective femoral head size. For a given astabular component, you know, just to throw out a number like a size 48 astabular component, for traditional bearings, you can only get a 28 millimeter femoral head if you want to have adequate polyethylene thickness. However, by going to this dual mobility bearing, you can get a much larger effective head size, more around a 38. And so this provides additional stability in the system. This is especially useful in some of these post-traumatic patients because, again, particularly with prior surgical approaches that may have violated the abductor or a cephalomedullary nail that goes through the abductor mechanism, they might have soft tissue deficiency and therefore be more prone to instability. But this is still a relatively newer technology, so I use it sparingly. We typically trial traditional bearings in the operating room and see what our sense of their stability with that is, and then make a determination if we need to go to a non-traditional bearing. Furthermore, it's more likely that we use this in a patient who is smaller and therefore cannot accommodate a larger head size. So a large male who has a size 60 astablum you are going to have a larger femoral head size available to you, and therefore this is not so much an issue. Awesome, thank you. So now that you're done with your surgery, you've taken out the hardware you need to take out, you've put in the appropriate components, what are your thoughts on weight-bearing? Because as we know, for primary total hips, almost all of them are weight-bearing tolerated immediately. But of course, in your paper, you and Dr. Phillips mentioned that some of these patients, you restrict weight-bearing for some time. Yeah. For me, it depends mostly on astabular fixation. On the femoral side, you can usually bypass their areas of prior hardware fixation and get fixation into good host bone. But on the astabular side, fixation can be more tenuous. And so depending on what their specific defect is and the quality of fixation you get, i.e. how many screws through the astabular component and whether they are good screws with solid purchase, then we restrict weight-bearing to toe touch for six weeks oftentimes. And patients understand that because this is a bigger procedure, 
you are really asking them to be restricted for a relatively short amount of time in order to buy a lifelong result. And so this is usually acceptable to them as well. Excellent. Thank you. That was a wonderful overview of hip arthroplasty for patients with post-traumatic deformities. Dr. Lou, before we wrap up here, I'd like to ask you if you could leave the listeners with two take-home points that you want them to remember from this conversation. Sure. It's been a pleasure to talk about our paper and the finer points of these complex procedures with you. The two take-home points I would say are adequate preparation. So fortune favors a prepared mind. And in these cases in particular, it all boils down to the preparation, rehearsing the steps of the procedure ahead of time, knowing what equipment you need, both for hardware extraction as well as subsequent reconstruction. So that would be number one. Also, the workup that was discussed. So infection workup and imaging workup of their bony anatomy. And take home point number two would be once the hardware is removed, whether that be in a first stage or at the same setting, after that, we try to boil it down as much as possible to the principles of a primary total hip arthroplasty. So if you achieve adequate bony fixation of the components, ideal component alignment, and then follow the basic principles of restoring leg length and offset, then you should be good to go. So if you boil things back down to those basic principles, you will be fine. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. All right. So today we have a special additional segment of our podcast, which we're calling the Residence Corner. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Dana Phillips on the podcast, who, with Dr. Liu, was one of the authors of our review article today. First of all, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Phillips, for being with us. And thank you again for your excellent article. We had a great conversation with Dr. Liu. It was highly educational. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. So I understand that you're a fourth-year resident at Temple University. Is that right? That is correct. Awesome. And what are you applying to? Oh, I will be applying into pediatrics. I just finished my last interview this past weekend, so we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Congrats and good luck on the match. Oh, thank you. So Dr. Phillips, not only did we want to have you on today in regards to your review article, but you know, also we wanted to talk to you about how you prepare and maximize their education from your surgical cases for some of our medical students and junior residents who are listening to the podcast. Okay, great. And I think it's definitely a great question to ask, as well as it's great for not just medical students, even just junior and senior residents to know how to kind of prepare for these types of cases, because they can be difficult. Yeah, I agree. One of the sagely pieces of advice that I received from one of my chief residents when I was an intern was, you know, to be the best resident, ultimately the best surgeon you can be, you have to maximize the educational value of every single surgery. It's not just you know, the quantity of surgical repetitions, but it's the quality of each surgical repetition when it comes to education. So Dr. Phillips, first of all, how do you prepare, say the night before, how do you prepare for the upcoming day's surgery? So I take it as a stepwise process. So first, we usually get like an email of whatever cases are attending that we're going to be with during that week or even the following day will have. So starts with just knowing what cases the attending is going to have and then as well as knowing the patient in and out. So as soon as we get an email of the cases our attending is going to have for that day, I just start by looking up the patient because, you know, of course, 
we see it as, okay, this patient's scheduled for a total hip or even if it's like a total knee or whatever it may be, not every single case is going to be exactly the same as the one before. So just knowing and reading about the, not just the case, but just the patient in general as to just basically just knowing why they're having the total hip, if they had any type of, you know, previous surgeries or medical issues prior to and kind of what led them up to wanting to have a total hip and them being scheduled for it. Excellent. So preparing not just for the surgery, but also understanding all the patient factors going into the surgery. Exactly. And then in terms of surgery itself, what do you like to do to prepare for the case the next morning, whether it's, you know, a complex total hip or really any case in orthopedics? What is your general preoperative studying and preparation that you personally undertake before going into the operating room? That's a great question. So definitely looking at the x-rays, especially the night before. And if your program has the option of templating, I think it's a great educational tool that you can use to kind of help you throughout the case as well. So templating, if you have it, if not just reviewing the x-rays. I also try to know which approach my attending will be taking to the hip because there's, as you know, there's multiple approaches and Every attending has, you know, their go-to approach, whether it's just your standard posterior approach or even the direct anterior Smith-Peterson approach. So definitely knowing the different approaches that you may have to take are super important. And even if, say, you know your attending always does direct anterior for these total hips, sometimes things may change interoperatively. So I think just studying one approach the night before because that's the standard approach your attending takes isn't the best idea. I think you should definitely know all of the approaches to the hip. And then for me... I think it's a great idea to know what equipment your attending is going to use and at least try to familiarize yourself with the equipment. I know you may work with multiple attendings and each one may use different companies, but at least trying to be familiar with it. And a lot of companies have an instruction PDF online that you can kind of at least familiarize yourself with their equipment. And that can actually make it more of an efficient case for you, as well as, you know, it actually helps prove to your attending that you know what you're doing and they may even let you do more as well. So that's always a great benefit. Yeah, I fully agree. I think demonstrating competence and, you know, demonstrating worthiness of trust from your attendings. And part of that is knowing their specifics, as well as, like you say, you know, reading the technique guides for the various implants and instruments that you'll be using are all ways to demonstrate you've come prepared, you're worthy of maybe some more surgical autonomy. So how do you, Dr. Phillips, like to maximize the educational value of each case, would you say? So to maximize my learning experience, and of course, it's me coming from as a fourth year, but I think just in general, as a resident, you have to take it step by step as I would expect, you know, a medical student as well as even like maybe an intern to definitely know the anatomy. And as you kind of progress through your residency years, you know, as you move from your intern year to your second year and third year and fourth year, you should learn know not just anatomy, but, you know, your equipment and their different types of approaches. And then once you get, you know, into your senior types of levels, you should actually at least get to the point where you know the steps to the procedure, like to the point where you're not just saying, okay, well, I know we're going to do the acetabular component. And then once we finish the acetabular aspect, we're going to go to the femoral stem. But the specifics where you're going to be asking for the equipment before your attending's even going to ask for it, you know, like the next two steps and just basically being prepared for it. For me, maximizing my educational experiences, not just knowing the anatomy and the approaches and basically just the steps, but being able to actually get to a point where 
I feel I could be the primary surgeon and basically do every aspect of it, even without the presence of my attending. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point you just made and something I would echo. What I tell our junior residents now is your goal should be to ultimately be able to do whatever surgery you're about to scrub for independently from you know patient positioning all the way to incision approach, the surgery, closure, and of course, post-operative management. And while you might not be doing that yet, depending on you know your situation and what year you are in residency, that should be your focus and act as if that is the case, in my opinion. So last question for you, Dr. Phillips, is there anything at the end of the case that you like to do to solidify and again, maximize the amount of education that you receive from a case? That's a great question. And I think it's actually an important question. So what I like to do is at the end of the case, I like to actually have a discussion with my attending, whether it's, you know, on this specific topic of post-traumatic total hip cases, or even just, you know, your straightforward inner trope nail that you're doing. But just having that conversation with your attending, you know, whether it's Dr. So-and-so, what did I do great in this case? How can I better myself? Hey, can you take a look at my preoperative plan and tell me what I could have changed or added to my plan to, you know, make it a little better? Or can you look through my preoperative plan and tell me how it differs from your preoperative plan? Yeah, I think that's a tremendous point. Getting feedback on your plan as well as your technique is really invaluable. And I guess the discussion of eliciting and being open to feedback might be a good topic for our next resident corner. But um, it's an incredibly important skill to be able to obtain feedback and better you know, yourself as a surgeon at the end of each case. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you, Dr. Phillips, for spending your time with us talking about how you prepare for cases. It's really invaluable knowledge. So I want to thank you and best of luck with your fellowship match. Thank you. And I really do appreciate this opportunity of being on this podcast. And I'm sure Dr. Liu enjoyed his time as well. And I definitely look forward to hearing other podcasts as well. So that will do it for today's edition of JOS Unplugged, brought to you by the AAOS Resident Assembly. I want to thank our two authors, Drs. Liu and Phillips, for joining us today. You can check out all of the articles that were discussed in the April 15th, 2019 issue of Yellow Journal. I hope that you all can subscribe to the podcast and additionally rate and review us. We appreciate the feedback. And with that, I'm Andy Jensen, and I'll see you next time.